Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Technology, intelligence, data. Today we live in a world that's more connected and more transformative than ever before. Our devices are helping us complete tasks at a faster pace and with more precision than we could have ever imagined just a few years ago. But as our lives in the physical and digital worlds become more intertwined, how can we be sure that the algorithms are always on our side? And how can we safeguard technology to ensure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands? In this series, we'll be meeting the experts, the technologists, entrepreneurs and activists to ask them some of those important questions and to champion the people using tech as a force for good for all. This is Our Lives Plus Tech, a brand new podcast from Nominate Trust, the UK's leading investor of social tech and the people behind NT100, a global campaign that celebrates the people and organisations who are using tech to change the world for the better. I'm Ada Paris, and in today's episode, we'll be focusing on the worlds of virtual and augmented reality. So Izzy went through about a year of very intensive treatment. Following that treatment, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something that used my professional experience to, to respond to what Izzy had been through. We're aiming to put healthcare information directly in the hands of children in a way that makes them feel empowered, engaged and informed, whilst having fun at the same time. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Don Rabin, the Managing Director of Corporation Pop, a company using augmented reality and gamification in a new app designed to help children go into hospital. It's a really inspiring story, so watch out for that shortly. But first, I want to introduce my guest into the studio today, a virtual reality specialist, a BAFTA award-winning producer and prominent speaker on ethics in the industry. Welcome to Catherine Allen. Hi. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. So Catherine, you are a VR creator. You spearheaded some very high-profile projects, um, including working with the BBC, and you founded your own company, Limina Immersive. Yeah. So could you start by giving us a little bit of your background? How did you really get into VR? Well, I first discovered VR, and this is a bit of an embarrassing admission to make, perhaps, when I thought I invented it. (laughs) This was back in about 2014, and I was an app producer at the time at a company called Touch Press, making educational apps. And I was getting really into the idea of using technology to simulate presence. And I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it just be so cool if you could 
maybe put a phone in front of your face and move your head at the same rate as the camera's moving on a video, say, on your phone, and it would be like you were there. So <laughs> I got my coat over my head and I, I found a panning shot of a landscape on YouTube and moved my head at the same rate, just lunchtime, so, you know, sitting at my desk just after eating some sandwiches. And my colleagues saw me doing this and thought it was absolutely hilarious when I came out because the Google Cardboard had already been released. <laughs> It, VR was a thing, little did I know. And that was enlightening to realise that there'd been this whole wave of activity and invention that had happened decades before that I hadn't even been aware of as a teenager. And a few few weeks later, it was my birthday and my colleague bought me a Google Cardboard headset. <laughs> Best present ever. Best present ever. <laughs> it literally changed my life. <laughs> and, um, well, a, a few months after that, I decided anyway to go freelance and it was just when everybody was getting very interested in VR I was engaged I applied for my first freelance role which was at the BBC and got the job producing Easter Rising Voice of a Rebel which was the BBC's first commissioned VR documentary Okay. And turned out there are actually lots of other VR projects simultaneously in different departments uh, that were being made. So the pieces that came out uh, in early 2016 were so it's kind of cohort of the BBC's first wave of this kind of VR. BBC really making sort of making its mark. So storytelling through a new medium. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then I went on to exec produce a piece called No Small Talk, which is. A bit like this, actually. It's a, a virtual reality talk show, a bit like a podcast, yeah. uh, aimed specifically at young women. Okay. So that was uh, a good exercise in learning what it's like to produce work with a specific audience in mind mm -hmm. who otherwise would be underserved and underrepresented. And I got so, I suppose, sim simultaneously frustrated and excited about getting to these audiences that were not being served by VR already that I actually then went on to set up my company, which I founded, Liminar Immersive. And that's what we're totally focused around, is getting virtual reality to broader audiences. OK, and we're going to come back to that later on. But just for some of our listeners, could you explain the difference between VR, so virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality? And I've recently heard... XR, extended reality? Yeah, so as a whole, what all these VR, AR, XR, MR, what they're really about is about simulating presence mm -hmm. or simulating objects or people. So it's using the power of technology to, to simulate. Okay. So with virtual reality, that means at the moment, anyway, strapping a headset, a screen onto your face, which recognises your head movements, putting some headphones on and simulating being in another place or another time. It's a bit like bottling an experience and saying, here you go to an audience member, pressing go on it and there you are, you're in there. Augmented reality places objects that exist virtually in your physical space. And at the moment, that's mainly done through mobile phones. Okay. Uh, if you think about what people are actually using it for, Snapchat, for instance, there's a lot of augmented reality yep. there in Snapchat. There's a lot of these apps that you can you know, have your photo taken with a dragon, for instance, which is uh, using uh, tools like ARKit, which is a way that things are developed mm -hmm. for well, iOS devices or Android devices. There's lots of these kind of mobile AR experiences, but there's also this emerging wave of these kind of mixed reality headsets okay. that can seamlessly go between augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, sort of hybrid between the two. And many predict that that's really probably the future. And so that's why people tend to say XR. Mm. Uh, what I've heard of XR is the X just stands for, could be anything, AR, MR, 
the R. <laughs> it's something R. Okay, so it's it's an extended way of storytelling yeah. and immersion. Yeah, yeah. So VR seems to be at a bubbling point. So I remember last year, I think 2017, everybody was talking about this is the year of VR. But, you know, for, pe- for people such as you and I, we know that VR has been around for years. Um, I do now anyway. You know, <laughs> well, of course, yes, you didn't, in- in- you didn't invent it. <laughs> Um, but we've we seem to have lots of huge big companies now starting to develop and move into this space. And prices, you know, initially the headsets were really big and cumbersome, and I remember trying some of them and getting quite dizzy. And they're now becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And it feels like there's great potential for some of these companies, and not just the big players now. So more and more people are getting headsets. Yes, the majority of those are, as you mentioned, these mobile-driven headsets. So you've probably got, in your phone or even a device that you're listening to this on, the capability to do virtual reality already. You just need what's called a Google Cardboard to put it in. They're not all made by Google, though, because it's open source, yeah. so you can get plastic ones or cardboard ones or whatever. Yeah. And it's, I think it's actually really good, you know, that we've got this kind of gateway at the moment. But it's at this stage age of market adoption that we really need to be thinking about ethics. Yes. We really need to think about how this medium can show off society's best self rather than its worst. And it's malleable. You know, it's early days. We don't have to follow the status quo from other mediums. We can learn from the mistakes of other mediums, like film, for instance, or television. And we can say, hey, we're going to do it differently now. Well, could you expand on what you mean by the ethics of, you know, using VR and and the development of it. Yes, I suppose to, to dramatically simplify it, ethics is such a huge area yes. and I'm not an ethics academic. But for me, it's about seeing the potential of immersive media for good and seeing how it can show off society's best side and then practically implementing that the industry is going to evolve with all sorts of norms and practices, you know, hiring practices, for instance, ways that people are trained, um, that will all start to form. And now's the stage when we can think about that. So for me, ethics is thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. How do we want this to evolve? Where do we want to be in 100 years' time with this medium? And then thinking about the effects right now and on how we should make decisions. So whose responsibility is that? Who do you think should start that? It's, of course, all of our responsibility to think about the ethics of immersive media because it's going to affect us all. You know, we all have a stake in it. But there's obviously the people who are funding it and who are making it who are really, you know, at the coalface. So there is a particular responsibility there. And while we have this new superpower... I often think of, you know, technology is like magic. You know, it's like these superpowers that we've been given. We need to treat treat that with responsibility. And I often come back to that uh, when seen in Harry Potter when he first gets his magic superpowers, but he accidentally sends his Aunt Marge up like (laughs) a balloon, you know, because he didn't want that to happen. He was still learning how to use his powers. We kind of need to avoid that happening where if we don't consider things and we don't think about things then we might end up in a situation where we accidentally go off, veer off in the wrong direction, metaphorically send our Aunt Marge up like a balloon. (laughs) Okay, so um, I don't want to spend too long discussing the potential negatives, but you've written some brilliant pieces for Wired magazine around the idea of moral panic around virtual reality. And you included some great headlines. So would you mind just reading some of those and giving, giving us some context around where they came from? Yeah, sure. Um, So the article about VR and moral panic, it was, I suppose I wanted to give a quite a fun and 
kind of like light and interesting way into thinking about the ethics of VR. And while it, we shouldn't get too bogged down in the negative side of things, we do need to consider that. So if we know what we don't want it to turn out like, it helps us then think about what we do want it to turn yep. out like. Uh, so while, say, you know, Black Mirror, uh, if we got too bogged down in that and depressed and didn't want to work in, in these industries and, and do it, it could be bad for the industry. It's still good, I think, to to have this collective imagination of worst case scenarios yeah, it's good to ha- it's it's good to know what you don't want to yes. happen yeah yeah it's a starting point and it can be quite fun as well as i had quite a lot of fun writing these headlines of the future shall i read so one yeah, yes yeah. so if you read a few of them and then give us the context of where they came from and the conversation around that yeah okay then uh so i'll, I'll pick one um, this is i predicted that this would actually happen this year I haven't heard it happen yet, though. Um, VR attraction forced to close due to mental health lawsuit. Wow. So this imaginary headline was the idea that you've got more and more of these VR attractions now. It's a market that's growing quite considerably. So, for instance, like in a theme park, you know, uh, there's often VR attractions now. You could do like a VR roller coaster, for instance, in Alton Towers. There's also these specialist VR arcades, which are popping up in shopping centres across the country. There's one in Birmingham, I know, one in Bristol, quite a few in London. But something else is happening alongside that, which is, and something I've observed and I've talked to people about, people are finding when you come out of VR... It can be amazing if it's done well, that coming out of feeling. And you can see life with this whole new kind of, even like perspective, you know, you see the beauty of things. But if it's done poorly, the coming out of it, it can make you feel really weird. Like, so strange that this has actually happened to me. Okay. I was doing Batman VR experience. So I was flying around as Batman and I went through this whole process. I I stepped into his suit. I was dressed up as Batman. I'd gone through this sort of embodiment process. Uh, My my degree was theatre, so I suppose I probably maybe went to town on the embodiment as well. (laughs) And why not? Yes. And I was having a great time, but then the meeting was about to begin. You know, I'd had my quick 10-minute try and somebody... I suppose, kindly came up to me and said, oh, Catherine, just take the headset off. We're going to go in now. And because it was sort of midway through and I hadn't come back out of Batman's body, I had the headset sort of taken off me, I looked at my own hands and they just didn't look like mine anymore. Oh, wow. I looked at my body and I couldn't identify it as mine. And that feeling That's felt so strange. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, um, really unpleasant. And I had to actually go and sit down in the corner and have a glass of water by myself. <laughs> because it means it feels like there's, there was no period of decompression, of making exactly. the adjustment. To- so I have seen that other people have had these feelings coming out of VR, which is why I predicted that the two themes might cross over and that the decompression really needs to be considered. And so that's a reminder of with great power comes great responsibility. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. 
That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Exactly. Could you give us another one of the headlines, please? <laughs> yes. This one, the next one, which I predict happen next year. Study says VR porn leads to real-life erectile dysfunction. <laughs> We've heard about desensitisation in porn happening on rectangle screens. We know that the adult industry around VR is huge and there are more visits, for instance, uh, according to Alexa, to vrporn.com, which is one of the main VR porn um, aggregator websites, than to the Oculus website. It's pretty big, you know, and um, the, the VR porn industry thinks that most people buy headsets because of VR porn. Because you've done a lot of research in that area as well, didn't you? Which <laughs> yes. is quite strange for you. There's another wide <laughs> article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What and was the title of that article? Just in case people want to... Some, both of your articles, in fact... And it's if you want to build the biggest VR website, pivot to VR porn. If you just type in into Google Catherine Allen VR porn, then you'll find it. And I think the other the other article is called "It's time to prepare yourself for VR panic." Yes, yeah, yeah, um, and that's where you can see these headlines. I can go through some more if you like. VR celebrity sex game happening causes wave of injunctions. Um, another one: alt right techno futurist cult uses VR to brainwash new members. And another one, uh, US government defends the use of VR torture. Secretary of Defence says VR causes no physical harm. Wow. So there's some predictions. And um, what kind of quite... time frames did you put on those? I mean, for instance, the you know, US government defending use of VR torture, I said 2024 gives us a bit of time, you know, to yep. be thinking about these things. Um, the alt-right techno-futurist cult using VR to brainwash new members around the early 2020s. I mean, this... We, we've seen, talking about the potential negative effects of VR, yeah. we've seen already how persuasive virtuality experiences can be. And we've seen that mainly through VR for good. For instance, these empathy encounters where you, um, say, go to a refugee camp and you experience a day in the life of a child at the refugee camp and then you feel empathetic towards them and you may want to give more money to charity. I mean, UNICEF have found that with a piece called Clouds Over Cedra. Um, so I think what you've said just brings up some really important points. So first of all, an awareness of who is doing the influencing and the level of power that they have. Mm. But also, I think more importantly for me, anyhow, on a personal level, is about the audiences being cultivated. So, you know, what are we making and for whom? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these headlines are the most extreme worst-case scenarios, OK? Yeah. And I don't actually want to be deterministic about the future of immersive media. It's not necessarily going to end up like Black Mirror. So the way that we can consider this, you know, our own medium, it's not necessarily owned by Silicon Valley or in the same way that, you know, film isn't owned by Hollywood, it's owned by all of us. We can think about now, about audiences and about representing audiences in a way that maybe we wish, say, film had done before. And I think that leads really nicely into, you know, introducing some more about your real interest in VR. So the diversity of uh, how do you bring diversity and inclusion into VR? This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. This is what motivates me, is to have an industry, the vision of having an industry which is representative of a population but serves the population equally. It's not to say that every single piece of content has to be for everybody, but the broad body of work is representative of the people that it should serve. And for that, we need things like distribution channels, we need creators making a broad variety of work, we need 
lots of things. There's lots of jobs to be done. Yeah. Um, I'm just, you know, getting going on that with my company, Limina. Um, so to, to give a bit of statistics about the problem, there is already a problem yeah. with with immersive media, and specifically the area I focus on, VR, in terms of diversity. So in the UK, an uh, EY study last year found that 14% of women in the UK have done VR versus 20% of men. And I was involved in a study the year before that. We found 13% of women versus 20% of men. So maybe things are changing a little bit, you know, but it's still a problem. There's still a big gender gap. Um, I mean, I say there's a lot of jobs to be done and a place that we're starting is with the audience. So my company, Limina, we've been working with arts venues to set up these pop-up VR theatres. So the first thing we've done is we've thought about the space. How can we design a virtual reality space which is inclusive and fits in with the, the daily lives? You know, the patterns, what, like we were talking about before, what people are doing already. Yeah. And so by putting it in an arts venue already, you make it more inclusive because you open it up to the people who would be going to that venue. So, so you're meeting people where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so an independent cinema, for instance, or a theatre, um, a place that shows dance. Uh, if if you take a VR theatre to that space, people who already are involved in arts will come. Yeah. There, there's already more diversity there than there is in the existing VR audience, who are mainly men with disposable income, significant amounts of disposable income, who are educated, uh, mainly white. We really need to consider you know, spaces already where you can meet people who are much more broadly diverse than that. And could you tell us more about how you've been engaging women in some of your projects? Oh, yeah. So something I'm really proud of is that we have a majority female audience in the work that we do. And so thinking about that, you know, bottom-up approach, learning about audiences, uh, we've... So we have this collective VR space where six people do it at once we have a host who introduces the experience and then afterwards explains to them as they come out uh, and have had a kind of moments for regrounding the real world uh, that we want to ask some questions so often we'll have a discussion group and then also we give them feedback forms so we have we've built up this really big bank of qualitative and quantitative information where we've learned what is it that you can do as a VR creator or as a VR exhibitor to make the space inclusive for broad groups of people. And we've had some really interesting findings there. And what were some of the stories that you, or the events that you created? Ooh, um, so we've we've been to quite a few different cities now. I'll give you one example. Yeah. Uh, in Cambridge, as part of Cambridge Film Festival, one of the experiences that we showed, which we sort of promoted in a similar way to film, was called Wonderful You, made by a company in Bristol called BDH, who are really kind of VR pioneers. But it's it allows you to meet your unborn self. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Okay. So it's like going into the womb and meeting yourself when you were a fetus, which we all were. <laughs> I have so many questions around yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you learn about how different senses develop. Uh, there was one woman who came out of it who afterwards she said... It felt like she was able to reconnect with her mother, who she had wow. quite a distant relationship with, and had been she'd been grappling with that for a long time. And this piece had allowed her to have that kind of reconnection. And we had other responses which were equally as as deep and moving to hear about these audience responses. And I think that just highlights, you know, some of the earlier conversation around the ethics yeah. 
who do you then partner with in actually developing some of the ideas behind that? Some, so understanding how it's affecting people, where is that research then going? Great question, because it's really important that we do that rather than just sit on all this yes. research. We've just done a major project with Digital Catapults, okay. uh, who are a government-funded agency who set about to accelerate growth in digital space. And they commissioned us to run a study on the different genres and formats of virtual reality, augmented reality, other forms of immersive media, and then to look at audience response to that. So in this report, we've talked about audience response. We've broken it down to different creative formats. So, for instance, Wonderful You, the piece I talked about earlier, that uh, we've classified that in the format of educational wonder. So we've tested specifically with educational wonder works, audiences' responses, which then, as part of this report, are feeding back to the industry. So we reports, that's one way, quite a classic way. But You're actually also... working on the manifesto, Women in VR? Yeah, yeah Could exactly. you tell me a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. This is a project with King's College, University of Brighton, and Refig, who are the funder. And we got together... 20 of the most pioneering women in the UK VR sector. And this was end of last year. We made a manifesto together. We wrote it together. And this year we're going to be launching it. The things that are in the manifesto are some actually quite really big, high-level points about the industry as a whole. So, for instance, we often perceive of media as a mirror any form of media as a mirror for society and sometimes a catalyst but we start this manifesto by showing how other forms of media that mirror has been skewed it's been skewed to people who are privileged in culture and society at the time and so we set it in context by showing that right now in 2018 we've got this opportunity where women are have have more opportunity, more power than ever. There's still a lot to be done, but we are in a great space and there's a lot of interest in this in the public agenda. And for that reason, this new mirror or catalyst of society can be much more equally weighted. In fact, ideally, it can be reflective and representative. We need to address female audiences. We need to make sure there are female audiences. We need to get that gender gap sorted between the 14% and the 20%. But not just audiences, creators as well. Yeah, exactly. So there's the industry, there's creators, there's funders, there's all sorts of people who work in the industry, and then there's also audiences. They're both interrelated issues, of course, but they're two areas of focus. So the manifesto looks at both those areas. Great. And actually that leads really nicely into introducing the next project. And as we alluded to earlier, it's a technology that's not just for entertainment, and there are other ways to create these meaningful exchanges. So our next story is a prime example of that, and a really inspiring one too. Here's Don Rabin to introduce Patient's Virtual Guide. I'm Dom Rabin. I'm the MD of a digital innovation agency called Corporation Pop, and we make apps, games, and software. So Patients Virtual Guard is an application that we've been working on for the last two years that is is born really from personal experience. So five, six years ago, my daughter was diagnosed with cancer. She was treated at six different hospitals, one of which was in the United States. So fantastic clinical care, and that's the reason why she's fit and well today and has just celebrated five years cancer-free. But I realised that the lack of information she received during that process made her feel disenfranchised from the health service. So I, I did lots of research and found that there's, there's solid academic research that says that if you 
provide information for patients prior to a medical intervention. They experience reduced stress, reduced anxiety, and that can lead to better clinical outcomes. What we found when Izzy was being treated was that what little information there was, and there, were, there wasn't much at all, but what little information there was was directed at us as parents. And for my daughter, who at the time was 13 years old, intelligent girl, perfectly capable of being talked to about the things she was going through, what we found was that because she wasn't being addressed and because information wasn't directed at her, she ended up feeling excluded from that process and that left her feeling isolated and ignored. And the net effect of that was that she was resistant to treatments because their purpose wasn't explained to her and she was scared of going into hospital environments because she didn't know what to expect. So the way the app that we're creating works is we're aiming to put healthcare information directly in the hands of children in a way that makes them feel empowered, engaged and informed um, whilst having fun at the same time. And the, the idea revolves around the child creating an avatar which becomes their virtual friend through their hospital journey and they can customise that avatar and name that avatar so that they feel a real connection, with, a real personal connection with it. And that avatar will then become the conduit through which health service information is delivered and will explain hospital environments, hospital processes and hospital staff to them so that they can understand through their avatar what that experience is going to be like. So we're working very closely with a number of charities to assemble a database of, of answers. Essentially, we're using artificial intelligence to understand questions that children may ask and then deliver appropriate responses through an artificially intelligent chatbot. One of the things we do in the app is use 3D interactive models to explain complex technology like MRI scanners. And in our app, a child can tap a button and uh, scan their avatar guide in a virtual MRI scanner. If they tap another button, they can see an exploded view of the scanner so that they understand what all of the component parts do. And it's really important that we familiarise children with technology like this. Uh, we know that patients who are ill-prepared for procedures like MRI scans um, often move on the scanner table. And when they move, which happens in around 20% of cases, when they move, the procedure has to be repeated. The cost to the NHS of doing that is about £140 a time. And with 3 million MRI scans a year, that's an annual cost of around 85 million. So if we can make some small difference to that just by preparing children for that process so that they're less likely to move, then we will potentially save the NHS money. Augmented reality allows us to do some things that we couldn't do with other technologies. So, for example, one of the big issues that children face in a hospital is something called cannulation, and that's the act of putting a, a cannula in the back of a child's hand to either take or introduce fluids. And it's not a particularly nice process, but in a child's hand it's really, really difficult because finding the vein uh, and getting the needle in the right place can often take several attempts. So... We're using augmented reality to facilitate familiarisation with cannulation by allowing the child to see what a cannula will look like on the back of their hand so that they can understand what that process is going to be like before they go through it. So in that example, augmented reality is a really crucial piece of technology that enables us to do something that you couldn't do through other means.
Izzy's been our greatest and biggest critic in all of this. Her criticism has been really helpful and constructive because she's she's experienced all of this firsthand. She's actually got involved with user testing, so she's come and run groups with young kids and explained how the app works and explained the iPad and explained the experience that, that she went through uh, that's brought the app about. So she's right behind it. In the early days, we didn't have any funding. We just had the seeds of a good idea and a desire to make it happen. So with our connection, we were then able to apply for a small amount of money from the NHS, and that funded some user needs analysis and testing of some basic prototypes that were built in a hospital environment. Then we self-funded some more development, and then about a year ago, got the fantastic news that we've got nominate trust funding and that enabled us to really build on that prototype and get to the point that we're at today which is a, a fully functional prototype and then in the run-up to Christmas so really recently we got the amazing news that we've got half a million pounds of funding from Innovate UK and the Biomedical Research Council and that's going to enable us to take that prototype that we built with nominate trust's help and take it to something that is nearly ready for market that can be tested with patients in a hospital setting. You're listening to Our Lives Plus Tech from Nominate Trust. Thanks there to Don Rabin with the Patient's Virtual Guide. And what an amazing project. Yeah. And it's great to hear that Nominate Trust funding helped to build those prototypes. And I suppose coming back to what we were talking earlier about building from the ground up, understanding your audience, I mean, he has his audience, yeah. his daughter, who she's and clearly been a big part of the development of this process. It's been a co-creation. And to have your audience at the centre and that understanding of of some immersive media is really how every project should run. Because I suppose the thing is when you when you do VR or AR, because it's a, a sort of simulation, you bring yourself to it much more you take away your own story from it. It's not like being told a story. I often don't, don't really use the phrase storytelling when I talk about immersive media. I use this phrase, it's maybe a bit clunky, but story living. Okay, because I've also doing. heard story doing. Yeah, yes, story yeah. doing, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, because that means that the end story is a co-creation between your audience member and the creator, that means you need to understand your audience member. Yeah. And that's, and that's what that's they've done. With, and that starts with empathy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so for our audiences, our listeners, if you want to explore some more projects linking virtual or augmented reality with healthcare, there are some you can find through Nominate Trust's Social Tech Guide, and that's socialtech.org.uk. And a few examples include the University of Southern California have a project called Brave Mind, which is using VR therapy to help PTSD patients recover. I mean, that's amazing. You then have uh, Deepstream VR have a project called Cool, which uses virtual reality gaming to help relieve pain. NeuroVR is a company using VR in surgical training. And that's a massive help for first-time brain surgeons out there, I'm sure. And the list goes on. So to find out more, again, go to socialtech.org.uk. So, Catherine, we're coming to the end of the show now. It's been great speaking with you today. And as we come to the end of the programme... I'd like us to leave our listeners with a few takeaway tips. So for somebody entering the VR industry, what strategies would you suggest for building a, for building in a bigger purpose? Well, if you're at this stage, you're thinking, hmm, should I dip my toe in VR waters? Should I, should I enter this industry? 
I think it's really important, first of all, to think really consciously about the audience that you're serving. So know who they are, like we were talking yeah. about just now. And if you don't think about it consciously, what might happen is you sort of just go with the flow and accidentally follow the status quo and end up making work uh, for people who are already quite well served with content and making sort of assumptions and biases without realising it, you know, because if, you don't, if you're not conscious of things, then you can just you know, and end up doing what everybody else has done. Um, So I suppose it's consciousness and and being aware, being aware of things like bias, being aware of things like assumptions in the work that you're making. And if you don't know, ask. Yes, 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 definitely. So do the research. That's it. Actually, my next point, co-creating with the audience that you choose. Yeah. Once you know who that audience are and you've thought about them, Test your ideas with them. Ask them questions. You could have an audience panel or a focus group. You could immerse yourself in as much existing research as possible as well about that audience. And let that audience guide the creativity, guide the ideas that you come up with. So don't, I suppose, you know, there's that phrase Henry Ford said, if I'd have just listened to my market, then I would have built faster horses. Yeah. Uh, we do have to be aware that if you always just totally get driven by your audience, you might go down all sorts of less productive alleyways. <laughs> but if you let your audience be a stimulus and inspiration for your creativity, then I think really cool things can happen. Um, there's some really great projects around empathy, for instance, building empathy yeah. for certain groups of people or therapeutic uses of VR. But I think if you want to do good and make VR, you don't have to have make those kinds of experiences. If you have a perspective that is generally underrepresented, then literally just by allowing people to experience that perspective, you are doing good. So speak up. Don't be afraid, you know, to come out with your ideas. Expect, you know, your ideas deserve to be heard. So it's kind of coming to the me- this new medium with that approach, knowing that your perspective is important. And so going back to the conversation we had about diversity, how can we become more conscious and responsible in building VR in a way that is inclusive? Thinking about inclusivity, this is really a question I think I want to focus on in terms of decision makers. If you're a decision maker in the industry and you're making constant decisions about how the industry will grow and evolve, even on like a day-to-day level, it's important to think about the industry that it will mature into. So think about where VR will be in, say, 20, 30 years' time and know that you've got a unique position of power and responsibility. So that's about thinking about this new medium as something that is reflective of society as a whole and that serves society as a whole and not just a privileged few. So looking towards the future, are there any other areas that you predict VR could help change the lives in a positive way? Yes, so many ways, so many ways. Education, I think, has got a lot of potential because when you experience things in VR or AR, they become tangible and we, we often learn by doing and we, we know that from years and years of education yep. theory. With VR, you are doing. With AR, you are doing. It becomes more memorable, it becomes more engaging and the research we've done, we've proved that it does increase accessibility of topics. Okay. Something that you might have thought was dry and a bit boring. Yeah. Experience it. Well, it gives it context as well, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. And then also the arts. Something that really drives me is that art has you know, huge positive social potential but it's quite hard to scale. <laughs> Whereas with VR, for instance, yeah. or AR, 
we know technology is a great scaling force. So applying that presence, that immediacy that you get with VR to theatre, say, that could reach much more people. So just a practical example, imagine David Tennant performing a sonnet to you in your living room. <sighs> Wouldn't that be brilliant and educational at the same time? Uh, yes. I'd love to see more experiences <laughs> like that for many reasons. <laughs> So thank you, Catherine. We've now come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a great conversation. So where can our listeners find out more about your work? I think following me on Twitter is probably the easiest way. I'm at underscore Catherine Allen. And Limina's website is www.liminaimmersive.com. Great, thank you. And also thanks again to Don Rabin from Corporation Pop, the man behind Patience Virtual Guide. You can follow him on Twitter at Don Rabin, that's R-A-B-A-N. And to explore other global projects transforming lives with tech, like those featured in this podcast, head to Nominate Trust's website, that's nominatetrust.org.uk. There you'll find more information on the NT100 campaign, including our new report, Transforming Lives with Tech, a global conversation, sharing insights from five years of NT100 projects and emerging social tech trends for 2018. We'll be back in two weeks' time. In the meantime, make sure you hit subscribe, leave a review or tweet at Nominate Trust and let us know what you think. Until then, from me, Ada Paris, goodbye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.